0: Hi, good morning, everybody. This is Melissa Groman for Voices of Recovery. I'm very happy to have with me this morning Jennifer Hamady. Jennifer is a voice coach and therapist specializing in technical and emotional issues that interfere with self-expression. She has practices in New York City and Washington, D.C., and she also works remotely. Jennifer works in private practice with people to discover, develop, and confidently release their best personal, professional, and performance potential. Her clients include Grammy, CMA, Emmy, and Tony Award winners, as well as corporate and creative clients across an array of industries. Jennifer's insights and experiences, she spent the early part of her career performing with many of music's top names, including Stevie Wonder, Christina Aguilera, Patti LaBelle, Def Leppard, American Idol, and Cirque du Soleil, um, have, cap- have been captured in her first book, The Art of Singing, Discovering and Developing Your True Voice published by Hal Leonard and heralded as a breakthrough in the psychology of music and personal performance. Jennifer conducts workshops and lectures frequently around the world on matters of creative expression and writes regularly, regularly for the Huffington Post, <laughs> an American songwriter and psychology today. Welcome, Jennifer.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: I am so happy to have you. That's quite the bio. There's so many things that I'm tempted to just jump right in and ask you about. I want to know about all these amazing experiences you must have had working with so many interesting and talented um, people, including a few icons. Um, Can you just tell us your story a little bit, and then I have a lot of questions for you about finding your voice and and certainly you have been in so many areas of the creative arts. So can you just give us a little background from your angle?
1: Sure. Um, well, first, thank you for, for what you said. I, I've really had a very, very blessed life and a very wonderful career and um, have been so lucky to be able to have done so many different things and to do them, um, fortunately, with a lot of success and a lot of enjoyment. So I do feel very lucky in that way. Um, The the very long story short is that I started um, from a very young age singing and um, started touring and doing records in my late teens and early 20s and started realizing that a lot of the issues that people around me were having with their voices, um, there was a lot of struggle, um, seemed to be more emotional than technical. And, um, And as I started really trying to help them, I started to realize that so many people were trying to focus on getting out of their way um, vocally when, in fact, there were a lot of personal issues wrapped up with te- their technical vocal expressions. So even though I continued for 10-plus um, years performing as my main focus of my career, I wrote a book about uh, the one that you mentioned, The Art of Singing, um, sort of the psychology of singing and how uh, that's a really needs to be a priority for people to Uh, to put it one way, to get their heads on straight before they really uh, could tackle the technical issues with their voice. And then when I got a little older and was ready to settle down and have a family, um, the book coupled with um, master classes I've been giving, I'd gotten um, very popular with singers for that. And now I'm focused full time on writing about finding your voice and seeing clients and doing workshops. So that was a nice transition and and that brings me to where I am today.
0: Great. So, tell me a little bit more about finding your voice. And you know, to me, there's a certainly a double meaning. I'm sure it's finding your voice, your voice, voice, and then it's finding your voice. You know, the the quiet, creative, intuitive sense of yourself. I'm sure, as you alluded to, that that they're they're connected deeply. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about how one finds their voice. And certainly, I'm I'm excited for you to expand on what what gets in the way. Mm. What are some of those emotional blocks that you um, alluded to?
1: Well, I I really love that expression, finding your voice. I, it's the title of my blog for Psychology Today, and it's actually my website, findingyourvoice.com. And even though it tends, I think, to be often a bit overused, it's a very popular phrase, I've never found a phrase to, to really capture so perfectly the the mission or the goal of personal and creative expression. Um, and you're absolutely right. There is the notion of finding your voice, your actual voice, your instrument, as well as finding your personal voice, as you said, in the quiet moments. And for me, why the phrase is so perfect is the word finding, to find something. Um, or to discover something. To me, the most important aspect, whether it's personal or performative or um, professional, any, any sort of aspect of finding your voice is really about uncovering something that's always been there rather than going outside of yourself and trying to learn something or to gain something. I think that um, the most important first step in any discovery is, a, is truly self-discovery, um, to empower yourself to look and see what have I been neglecting or what have I been missing? What strengths have I yet to acknowledge within myself? Because I find in my work with um, artists and non-artists, with with all of my clients, there's a real lack of confidence when it comes to trying to find uh, their best expression in whatever way that is. And I think that when people start really considering, maybe I have most or all of the tools that I need to live a happy and fulfilled life. It really shifts their energy from one of anxiety and uh, nervousness and fear to confidence, which ends up being, as you mentioned, a, a more of a quiet calm that comes over them. Um, from which point they really can view the world. Uh, the whole context of their experience shifts from something fearful to something exciting. So um,
0: what are the things that are uh, that that people are afraid of? What are some of those fears?
1: Um trying to think, you know, because again, as you mentioned, I, I, I do work with performers as well as non-performers, though there are some tremendous similarities. I think that one of the biggest commonalities I see is a fear of rejection, a fear of failure, um, which are very similar. I think that people find uh, that the more they're considering extending out into the world, um, whether it's Um, professionally or as performers, you know, larger and more important gigs, or even personally in romantic love and relationships into their communities. People fear. um, I find that Rather than seeing it as an opportunity to be vulnerable, they see vulnerability, they think of it as as having a pejorative connotation, as something negative. Vulnerable means I can be hurt, rather than vulnerability being something that allows me to expand and love and to be loved. So I think part of that comes, um, in my opinion, from our culture today. We live uh, in in a much more isolated uh, type of environment, even if we're very close to our families and our communities than we certainly did um, thousands of years ago where we were much more interconnected, and necessarily so. So I think as people, again, um, seek to connect and to contribute, they come up against a lack of skills, frankly, and a lack of tools to know how to do that effectively. And then fear creeps in, uh, which they experience as, I'm afraid I'm going to be rejected or not good enough or fail, or whatever those words mean to, to them.
0: And do you have ways that you help people to work with those fears to get to a point where the vulnerability feels like a way to open up instead of close up?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, of course, everyone's different, and I'm sure just as in your practice, you know, you, you look at each person individually, and even though we all have toolkits that we draw from, um, I think everyone uh, really Oftentimes, has a, there's a very unique path to the same destination. Um, but in general, if I were to say what, what I find works, in addition to helping people understand what it is they're actually afraid of, uh, which is a, isn't really the important first step. For example, to go on a slight tangent, if a performer is convinced that he or she is terrified of um, the voice shaking or hand shaking or singing an off note, um, to, help, uh, to help them understand that, no, really, that's sort of a symptom of the real issue, which is a fear of being rejected, a fear of not being good enough, a fear of having invested decades into a career that might not work out. So the first step is to really isolate what's at the core rather than just looking at the symptoms, uh, which I think people often tend to do. And then, no, go ahead, please.
0: I was just thinking how, I was just going to say that that's just so common and human to all of us is the, those core feels, fears of not being good enough and how we're going to be seen, but
1: please. Absolutely, and, and I think to your point, because there's such common fears when we experience something that so many other people around us are experiencing, we go, ah, okay, that's a, a quote-unquote normal fear, that must be what it is, and oftentimes we stop being curious about what might be underneath it. Well, why are we afraid of rejection? I mean, again, everything is an individual experience. My perception of what rejection means might become entirely different than yours. Um, But if we stop at saying, okay, I'm afraid of being rejected without really looking at, well, why is that? What does that mean to me? Where does that come from? And I think the most important question along that line is, let's look at the worst case scenario. What am I, what's the ultimate thing I'm afraid of? Okay, what happens if I, for example, you know, sing a terrible note or get hired to be the lead in a Broadway show and I'm just absolutely terrible? When I find that I ask those questions and we really start looking very closely together at what really could be the worst case scenario, there's usually a really beautiful aha moment, a, a dawning of understanding on their face for they'll they're, they're actually surprised to find out that they're not going to die, which is silly as that is. Um, that's what our fears really are concerned about. Our fears and our egos are concerned about survival, even though we obviously know we're not going to um, you know, drop dead if somebody doesn't like our speech or our, or our song. Um, on a very fundamental survivalistic level, that's what our identities are struggling for, a sense of actual survival.
0: You know, I find that to be so true, and I work with a, a lot of young women With eating disorders and who are in a lot of emotional pain, and what you're saying speaks right to the heart of that as well. That there's such a fear, and I think again it's very human. We all have it of being, of being um, believing in the worst-case scenario that that somehow we would be annihilated if we were vulnerable or if we made a mistake. And I have, I love the word curiosity, which you used. I have in my office a big C hanging on my wall, (laughs) Um, and people always ask me, "What's the C for?" And sometimes people like to guess the C is actually for curiosity because, you know, you're so um, aptly put it that if we can be curious about what's underneath all of those symptoms mm-hmm. and see what it is and unpack it a little bit. And I, I find that many of us, myself included a lot of the time, somehow believe that that worst-case scenario you're talking about is actually going to happen, and that if it mm-hmm. did happen, it really would be devastating. And what exactly. you is... It, a it may not happen, and b, if it did happen it 's actually not so devastating
1: exactly you, you know you're, I love these conversations because they get you you know just, they get the creative juice of juices flowing and and uh, at the same time, they also make me want to go on a million tangents so So just bring me back Please. if i 'm going completely off track, but um, as you could probably imagine, I, I see a lot of eating disorders in my practice with performers. Um, yeah. which, as uh, as many of your listeners might know, tend to really involve a lot of perfectionism and control issues. Of course, there's a million reasons why uh, different people struggle with different issues, but if we had to generalize, that tends to be the case. And one thing I noticed, to your point, um, is that their sense of not only self-worth and value, but their personal, their whole sense of who they are, is tied up with, um, often, this one thing that they're trying to control, whether it's their performances or how their body looks or um, their relationship with food. And um, it's really um, it's so important to help them see, and it can often be a tremendous challenge to help them see, that it really isn't about their body, their weight, uh, but really the notion that they've tied up, whether consciously or otherwise, uh, the, their notion of self-worth—that they are unworthy if they don't look a certain way, or achieve a certain weight, or perform a certain way, uh, or for other women, uh, for example, achieve a certain kind of relationship or a certain, um, a certain level in their career. So to help people understand that their notion of what, of who they are. Back to your original question about finding your voice and your that inner quiet. Our notion of who we are as people has shifted from something that used to be a communal experience, a member of a community. I am a member of a community. I am an observer of life. I am a participant. To I am, unfortunately, I think today is much more common, someone who must prove myself, someone who must be a certain way, someone who will only be accepted if I achieve a certain thing. And the only pathway to do that is perfectionism, control, relentless drive, relentless pushing. And it's, it's very sad. I think we all have moments of that because we're part and parcel of this culture. But for people who really don't have the ability to step outside of that conditioning and just be, just to be quiet and to observe life and to be a member of a community and to be loved and to be just present, uh, it's a very exhausting experience, very stressful too.
0: Yes, exhausting is so spot on. It's so the pursuit of that because it's, it's endless. Yes. And I think that disconnecting, body image and the pursuit of that perfectionism from your creative voice in order to engage in the arts is so crucial and it seems like, you know, it's really difficult to do. Do you have, you know, any any tips, any suggestions for how, you know, a young woman can start to disconnect from the perfectionistic pursuit and the body image and the pain and tune into what you said earlier, which was so great, which was finding your voice, which implies that, you know, we all have a voice, whether it's going to be applied to song or dance or, or paint or clay or, you know, whatever writing, that there is a voice to find. And mm. it gets blocked by these these obsessive pursuits that you're talking about. So what what do you suggest? How does one start to separate the obsessions from, you know, from one's sense of creative self.
1: Right. Well, I think there are a number of things that people can do. I think um, one of the first things that I ask um, my clients to do, if it's possible, and it's very challenging for, um, it can be challenging for young women and men who live at home or still in high school where they're constantly surrounded by the influences of their family and friends, but to go on what I would call a media diet, to put away the Seventeen magazine and the MTV and the this and the that and the TMZ, put put it all away and just go on a media-free diet for a week or two. Now, for a lot of teenagers, that sounds like torture. Oh, but I, love, I, find I e- love that. Oh, it's, it's so true. All the mag- and I'm not saying that they're all bad. I, I'm, not, I'm really not a believer in good and bad. But I find that they are marketing-driven. Even, uh, you know, I think Oprah does a wonderful job, but I think uh, most magazines and most media today focus on trying to get people to believe that they need to look and be a certain way to be good and okay. So when you remove all of that, for example, I, I do that even as an adult. I'll stop watching the news and then when I turn it on again I'm just amazed at how much fear uh, and how much horror and terrible, you know, just a panic there is. And of course there, there are things going on in the world that we need to be aware of and we should be concerned about. But it's only when you turn these um, influences, the volume on them down, can you start to just have some of that external quiet that then gives you a chance to think, So that's one thing I, I really encourage all of my clients to do, and, and the results tend to be amazing, especially for people, young people in particular, who are constantly on their phone, constantly on Facebook, constantly being given messages even from friends and family um, that are influencing their sense of, I need to be, I need to be, I need to be. Um, another thing that I think is really important um, when we were talking specifically about people with eating disorders, but the same is true of performers and anyone who tends to um, become fixated on something. Though their experience might not be that they're selfish or self-centered, and I don't don't mean those words negatively as they're often taken, but though they might not experience themselves as self-focused because they often, uh, I find, perceive themselves to be self-focused so that they can be accepted by others. Giving them something to do that really does put their focus on other people who are in need can be tremendous. So, for example, I'll encourage people to volunteer at soup kitchens or work in um, shelters with the homeless or, or young single mothers. Volunteer their time. Keep themselves busy with activities that really are focusing on other people and how they can help, which does something, um, which does two things. One, it. It helps them to confront in reality, not just in their minds, but in their reality, wow, there are people who who have, I'm going to say this to you, I wouldn't necessarily say this to them, real problems. These are people who don't know whether they'll eat and starve. These are people who don't know whether they're going to have to sleep in their car tonight. And so I think it can often give them a bit of perspective um, that they don't get um, when they're sort of locked in their own minds wrestling with whether I should or shouldn't eat this thing or whether I should or shouldn't binge and purge. Um, The other thing that it does, absolutely, and the other thing that it does is it helps them realize that they can make a difference. A lot of times, people who are fixated and um, there's there's a lot of a sense of uh, purposelessness that causes people, I think, to try to focus on controlling their body or um, their perfectionism, and that's because I find they being disconnected from a larger sense of purpose and community, they don't know what they have to contribute so not only can something like this help them to make a difference even volunteering at a library in the children's department can help right. them realize that they're they're valued and needed in addition to being helpful
0: right so important such good things you know to get out of all of that obsession and focus on what you yes have and what you can yes give to the world and and find again i love that word finding that you, uh, that you have at the core of your work, you know, finding your place, finding other things that are already there that bring out these other parts and get you out from under all of that pain and obsessive thinking. So important.
1: Absolutely. And if, if I can add one more thing, and this view, you know, tends to be, I don't think everyone necessarily in, in the psychological world agrees with me, but I think that we tend to be people today that um, – are very um, very focused on the idea that things are addictions and they're diseases and they're things that are um, very um, entrenched in who we are and therefore take a tremendous amount of effort and work to unravel them, if it's even possible to unravel them. And um, everyone, of course, is different, and certain addictions and certain issues really are entrenched and, and very hard to move. But especially with young people, I think it's so important to help them understand that, um, that they are flexible and fluid. And even people that are going through things like eating disorders, binging and purging or starving themselves, I think, it can be, I think it's very crucial to not, as much as we can in trying to help them, label what they have a disease or a disorder, which might in fact make it something that they then think, oh, well, This is something that I just am. This is a part of who I am, rather than this is something I'm dealing with. I've seen many, many of my young singers who have what appear on the outside to be, you know, just horrific cases of bulimia or anorexia, um, abandon them a year down the road, two years down the road. Objectively, it looks almost in hindsight like that they were just experimenting with it. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't still struggle or their insecurities are are just, they have just disappeared. But I do really think it's important to give people a tremendous amount of the benefit of the doubt to see people even that are hurting and struggling as whole, perfect, and complete beings who really can, in their own time and own way, with our help or or on their own, uh, find the path to uh, resolving issues that too many of us... um, seem unmovable
0: right. I think that that's so um, important to note that we get stuck and and I think that everyone does define themselves and, and view their own issues in in whatever way that works for them, and that can be changing, but that we shouldn't get stuck in certain thought patterns of seeing ourselves as broken or as entrenched, or as in a certain box, and that's the only box, that there's so much more. And I like that idea of flexibility, and flexibility of thought, that you know, we don't have to say that this is what it is and therefore this is what I have to be, that there's, there's a lot of room for expansion and to take a look at what we believe about ourselves, and it doesn't have to confine us
1: absolutely or at the very least this is a part of who i am this is one thing that i'm dealing with not this is a major problem that defines me and certainly not that defines who i will be in the future absolutely
0: right, right. it doesn't have to confine or define us or predict you know it, it can be a part of what we're dealing with and not the whole story that we and not the basis that we work from
1: absolutely we, uh, you, that you said it beautifully exactly
0: so I'm going to shift gears slightly because I, I wanted to ask you about, well, this is one of my favorite topics, so I'm selfishly asking you about this, but I noticed that in some Please. of your writing and your blogging, you write about acceptance as a starting point. And um, I love the idea of acceptance. And I used to think that acceptance, and I think maybe it does segue from what we were just speaking about, You know, is um, acceptance as a starting point and not as an ending point. Mm-hmm. So i mm-hmm. was wondering if you could just give us some of your thoughts on that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, an, it's interesting. I, uh, I'm 40 right now, and um, I remember being younger uh, how um, – how different my perspective was on life and I'm I'm always fascinated to see how much my perspective has changed not only because of my experience but because of my age and I'm, I'm so curious now about for example my grandparents when I listened to their wisdom and my aunts. And I used to think I can't why would you think that way they just seem so accepting they seem so like they've surrendered to life that they just sort of you know they're just more blah now I, I had this whole experience when I was younger of what acceptance meant and now I look at people that are older than me and, and think, oh, wow, maybe, maybe, I was, maybe I didn't understand what that surrender was, what that acceptance was. So that, that's a, a long-winded <laughs> reminiscence of. to answer your point. I think that acceptance, even though, of course, we all know what the word means, really it's the ability to stand in any moment and just be without our agendas, without our hopes, without our fears, and to see things clearly for what they are and to accept that they simply are that way. And why that's so critical, even though it sounds, you know, just hearing the words, it sound like, well, of course, isn't that what we do in every moment? You know, we, we stand in a moment, we observe it, and then we act from there. But most of us don't do that. It's, it's not human nature our nature is to have cognitive shortcuts for everything. We see a person and we, we have um, a whole shortcut for what that, who that person is, what they'll do, what, who, what they're like. It's how we have to process information today because there's, otherwise there's just too much coming at us. We couldn't process everything in the world that we experience. So acceptance is trying to slow down or halt that shortcut and being able to just look at what is and what isn't and to accept it, to just choose it, to say, this is, this is the environment in which I find myself, these are the experiences I'm having, these are the emotions that I'm feeling, and they're all okay. To just be all right with what is and what isn't. Because in that moment, when you're really operating from a position of clarity with what is going on in reality, only then can you take steps forward that make sense and that are, are truly powerful and effective, because otherwise your steps are... Mm. influenced by your perception of what is rather than by what's really going on. So I'm not sure I actually answered your qu- question. It's such an exciting topic. I think I bounced all over the place. So please rein me in and, and redirect me a little bit.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, again, you said so many good things in 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 uh, what you're talking about. You know, in just sort of pausing and saying, you know, this is always my, my favorite piece of it is pausing in the moment and saying, look, this is what it is right now. And fighting this is not going to get me anywhere, but if I just sit and take stock and let myself have the moment and have the feelings... You know, and then what? I mean, I always thought, you know, before I was further into my own wellness and my own journey, that acceptance meant like I'm doomed. Exactly. This is the problem and I am doomed. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of, hey, this is, these are the circumstances, these are the facts, objectively, and, and now what? And, like, you used the word perception which I think is fabulous, because you know, the older I get also i 'm a little bit older than you, <laughs> I can claim a little bit a few more years on you, um, but and I think that the older I get, and as you're saying this also, the perception changes, and I find that to be true for me also that um, things that I thought were facts on the ground were perception as much as they were fact, which is kind of exciting and scary at the same time because. Mm you know, something that I perceived to be horrible, like the size of my thighs or something, (laughs) my perception of how important that is, and at one point in my life, my perception of the fact that I had maybe not the smallest thighs, that my perception of that being horrible changed to my perception of that not mattering at all, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, so I think that that's such a, you know, it's such a neat thing that you're tying together acceptance and perception,
1: well, and you, you just tap, touched on something that I think is, is just as crucial as accepting what is and what isn't, and that is realizing, and you said it perfectly, realizing that what's true, what's factual, and what's perception are, are, are totally different often. Even when we think that we know what is true or right or wrong or good or bad, time um, or circumstance often shows us that that's not the case. And I think as hard as it is because we are people who tend to judge, it's just how we assign, you know, what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. It helps us to understand our world. It's a habit. That's a habit that I think if we can, if we can limit it as much as possible, it not only helps us to accept, as we were just talking about, what, what is and what isn't in our circumstances today. It helps us to be more objective, going forward. It helps us to understand other people more. When we're not saying, this is wrong, my thighs are wrong, my husband is wrong, my teacher is wrong, my body is wrong, or whatever is wrong, you know, my auditioner is wrong, we can just stop and just say, okay, this is what they said this is what they feel this is what's this is what they're doing and then the emotion the frustration leaves and we just accept that it is rather than it being right or wrong and it gives us a lot more freedom and therefore power to react appropriately in a way that creates rather than more resistance a win-win situation with other people certainly
0: oh, so definitely you know the, those habits of judging and of you know to to me it's all connected in some way back to that fear that we were talking about, and uh, and you mentioned letting, letting ourselves have all of our feelings, and I think, you know, a lot of people that I work with as well are afraid of those feelings. They just seem so unbearable, and mm-hmm. what's interesting is that what you're saying, when we get into that space where we accept people and circumstances for who they are and not put a right or wrong on it and understand that some of it may actually be our perception or, you know, that we can kind of find some sort of way of living with those feelings as bad as they are and that they'll pass and also that some of that may be our perception and that they are who they are and it's not as bad as we think it is. It's our perception, which sounds funny. It sounds like we're saying, well, your feelings aren't valid. It's the opposite. The feelings are valid. But, you know, perception kind of makes a difference and there's relief to be had. It seems oh, abs- confusing, but true in some way.
1: Yeah, and and to, you, you said something. I was just thinking if I try to tell my 17-year-old client who's struggling with um, whether it's eating disorders or, you know, she's got a, a, a magazine cover shoot that, you know, don't worry about the size of your thighs. She'd think you were absolutely crazy or per- perhaps you've, just, you've given up on looking attractive. And so it's very difficult to explain to people um, sometimes our perspective, the, a perspective that grants us freedom. But again, even though we yeah. can't necessarily help people understand how we view the world, I think we can encourage ourselves and each other to just continue to, to use your word, unpack the experience. Okay, go back a step. Go back a step. Just keep looking at why you're having that experience. What's underneath it? What's underneath of it? How, could, how is it possible? Is it possible for you to feel fantastic about your body and yourself in whatever condition and still desire to work out and be fit and be healthy? And I think a lot of times people don't... They, they, again, they don't allow themselves the time and the space and the quiet required to really um, see things in, in that more broad context to see what multiple things might be possible. I think that we see things as it's, uh, you, know, you view it this way or this way. Again, it's good or it's bad. It's possible or it's not possible, um, which, I, which, of course, is very limiting and, and doesn't, doesn't give us much of an opportunity to, um, to create freedom.
0: Yeah, you know, and the freedom is something that is so delicious, for lack of another word. And I was also looking at some of your writing where you talk about joy and affinity from problem solving. And I was thinking that there must be a connection between the joy and the affinity and the freedom that comes Mm. from, I think what you're saying is that there are internal solutions to external circumstances
1: Absolutely. You know, one thing that um, what, what you're talking about now specifically brings up another issue, I think, that's, that's so prevalent in our culture, and not only in our relationships with other people, but in our relationships with ourselves. And that is this, um, the pervasiveness of power struggles, the notion that one person is always more dominant in a dynamic, or um, I know we're speaking about performers or, or people with eating disorders, that one, um, one voice or one desire, one tendency is more powerful than another. And again, this, this power struggles are so common in our culture and common in our society that often we, we really don't even know that we're, we're kind of dan- doing that dance until we stop long enough and really, really take a close look at our relationships and our in ourselves to see how, how prevalent they are. But yes, to, to come full circle to your point, power struggles, in my experience, are the absolute death of joy, freedom, your big C, curiosity, wonder, aliveness, and, um, and creativity. And the only way to to eradicate them, I think, um, for better or worse, is to sort of go through the fire, to to literally surrender control, to surrender power, to look in a, in a relationship that's safe, emotionally, physically safe, for example, with a friend or a husband or a parent, and say, what would happen if I just stop fighting, if I just stopped trying to win, to be better than this person, to, to dominate this person? And even though our deepest fears might say, oh my gosh, I'm going to be run over, I'm going to be bowled over, I'm going I'm to have no say, we often find the exact opposite, that when we stop fighting for power, when we stop hitting that tennis ball back in that game of power struggle, um, the other person stops too, and then something new becomes possible. Partnership becomes possible. Um, and that, the same thing is true in ourselves. When we stop holding ourselves to these impossible standards, when we stop, whether they're physical or, or um, whatever they may be, when we stop driving and pushing and driving and pushing, um, we find that, I find with my clients that while there might be a moment of, okay, if I'm going to stop making myself be on this rigid, stringent diet, yes, there might be a little, a week or two where you say, thank God I can eat what I want. But then a balance, an equilibrium is then reached where, you know, when the pressure's off to be perfect, on the other side, the relaxation and freedom that comes in from not being so driven. Allows you some time and space and freedom to then think about other things and other people and other pursuits, including creativity. So, um, yeah, power struggles—it's really a huge challenge. That,
0: that the lack of struggle and the lack of pursuit actually, and the the lack of that is actually a pathway to creativity and relief. I mean, we we think it's the opposite. You know, we struggle and we struggle and we push and we struggle, and you're saying. Mm when we stop the struggle, when we allow our perception to be that what we're struggling with may be the wrong way, and we put that down, if we can help ourselves to be open to the idea. And I know that when when young women and young men also, I hate to always exclude men, but Mm -hmm. my experience is mostly with women, but when anybody puts that down, it's amazing what then can come forward in a more calm and authentic way. It's it's a beautiful point, and a point I think we may have to end on, except that I'm looking at our time and we need to wind down, but there's so many um, amazing things that you brought to us, and I'm so grateful and happy to hear all these thoughts. I think these conversations are so important and expansive, like you have said.
1: Mm. Well, I've loved speaking with you, and I'm happy to do it again any time. Like you, I think. Well, I feel we're just getting started. <laughs> but, yeah, and, um, you know,
0: I just want to encourage my listeners to check out your site and your books, um, Learning to Sing, and your your latest one, The Art of Singing, um, because I really think that there's so many good things there, and your blog, Finding Your Voice, um, just all these topics that continue to that i think we continue to need to continue to talk about Mm -hmm. you know sometimes Mm -hmm. i feel like it takes a lot of repetition and the more that we open up these dialogues and open up our our minds to these other perspectives we get untied from you know it's like you were saying about you know putting your focus elsewhere doing volunteer work and and looking outward that Mm -hmm. you know these are the these are the ways to unhook from the obsessions and and get the freedom. So I, I hope my listeners will find your books and your blog and there's um, a link, there will be a link right next to our conversation so that listeners can find you since you're available to do, you do distance coaching and workshops. Um,
1: yeah.
0: So you're accessible. That's uh, one of the great things about um, these days is that people can access um, good guidance from wherever they are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the many benefits of technology, for sure.
0: Wow. Well, let me thank you again for joining me today. Very much appreciated.
1: That's my, honestly my absolute pleasure. And uh, please don't hesitate to touch base anytime, and we can continue talking. It's been great.
0: All right. Thank you so much. And blessings to everyone.